What's going on, coaches? Uh, hopefully the season's going well for you guys. Uh, go check us out over at runthepower.com. Uh, you can check out our free uh, membership, and then you can also check out our premium membership, which we update um, at least once a month, but normally at least, uh, as many times as twice a month. So uh, you guys go check it, that stuff out. Coach Walls has got some great videos underneath there uh, for our free and our premium members as well. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Team Builder. Team Builder provides strength and conditioning software to athletic programs around the country. Whether you write your own programs, have a full-time strength coach, or need training programs, Team Builder can make your program more efficient, more accountable, and smarter when it comes to measuring your team's effort in the weight room. Visit their website and start a 14-day free trial. And right now, Team Builder is offering coaches a complimentary in-season football strength program. As you recall, the New England Patriots squat up to 90% of their one-rep max, even deep into the playoffs. So if your in-season strength and conditioning program and philosophy is to just maintain, uh, then you're doing it wrong. You can get the template once you start a 14-day free trial with Team Builder. Just reach out to them and tell them that you heard it from us. Go visit Team Builder at teambuilder.com, which is team, B-U-I-L-D-R.com. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sideline Power. Sideline Power is the industry leader in coaching communication, offering cutting-edge technology and innovation. Sideline Power helps coaches around the country elevate their program to the next level with new and used headsets, end-zone cameras, drones, portable sound systems, timers, and much, much more. Sideline Power works one-on-one with some of the most influential coaches and nationally ranked programs in high school football. They continue to help coaches push the envelope of player and program development. From NFL-level coaching communications to cutting-edge video technology, Sideline Power encompasses a full array of products needed to unleash the full potential of any program. Throughout the expansion of their product offering, Sideline Power has remained committed to offering quality coaching communication at price points for every program. They're family-owned and operated with a customer-first mentality. Sideline Power is truly the number one choice for coaching communication. Visit them at sidelinepower.com, by email at info at sidelinepower.com, or just give them a call at 800-496-4290. This episode is also brought to you by SkyCoach. SkyCoach is a proven sideline replay technology that will give you the advantage over opponents utilizing anything else. We use this at Broken Arrow, uh, and it's been awesome these first three games and all of the last uh, two or three seasons that we've had it, that I've been here. We've got 24-7 support, flexible network that works in any stadium and any size crowd, and the most reliable, innovative software available. To be the best, you must use the best. Don't let your team down by choosing something inferior. SkyCoach is the market leader in sideline replay. Go visit them at myskycoach.com to learn more. And then last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are soft shell helmet covers that reduce impact during practice. They're worn by over 1,000 high schools like mine at Broken Arrow or Walls is over at Ankeny in Iowa and over 100 colleges, a lot of them that you saw this past weekend like Clemson, Texas, Oklahoma, and Iowa State. Most programs utilize them for their guys in the box to address the repetitive sub-concussive blows that, as you guys know, add up throughout the season or an athlete's career. In fact, you can see what Lincoln Riley has to say about the caps in the linked articles on our show notes. They're also great for body blows, helmets to knees, hips, quarterback's hands, all while keeping the helmets looking good for game day and protecting speed flexes from cracking. Check out guardiancaps.com and request a quote for great team pricing. On this episode of RTP, we were fortunate to talk with Grey Cup champion and new author Angus Reed. Coach Reed is a former CFL All-Star offensive lineman and two-time Grey Cup champion. He currently serves as a business leader, author, and as a motivational speaker. He can be seen on TEDx via YouTube giving his address on why we need high school football, 
Uh, Coach Reed also just released his new book, Thank You, Coach, this week, which you can find on Amazon. Listen as we talk with Coach Reed about his unbelievable journey and career in college and Canadian football, his message to athletes and coaches about the importance of football in a young man's life, and how to stick out and stick on with a pro football team when you're not the biggest, strongest, or fastest player on your team. You can check out Coach Reed's uh, TEDx address all through our website uh, through a link in our show notes. You can also find his book through our, uh, through our website, runthepower.com, um, through the show notes and that as well. And you can follow him on Twitter at AngusReed64. Hope you guys enjoy. Okay, well, this is Angus Reed. I retired from pro football about four years ago. I uh, started playing ball in the 11th grade, which I know is late for most people. It's a story amongst itself. I played high school football here in crazy Canada. I played my college ball in Canada, but we played in the, in the NAI league. So I actually played in the U S we're the only Canadian school that played. Yeah. We're the only Canadian school that played U S ball. We're now a division two school. And then I played the pro ball here in Canada in the CFL for 13 years and retired in 2014. Uh, I'm in the business world now, but I spend most of my time trying to give back to this great sport that's given me so much. I speak on it. I write on it and I I coach any, which anywhere I can to anybody that will listen to me and try to help give back everything that's been given to me over, over this lifetime playing this great sport. Where old did you play in the CFL? What teams? So 99% of my career was with the BC Lions, which was my hometown. So I'm one of those really fortunate guys that got to play my career at home. I was drafted by the Toronto Argonauts, got cut by them, which was great. I was a first-round draft pick getting cut, so I might be the only person to ever be able to say that, which was <laughs> wonderful for my confidence trying to kick into the pro career. And I sat on Montreal Alouette's practice roster for – 13 weeks, which was fun because that's a fun place to go out and eat a lot of food, so I didn't have to bother about playing games. And I was traded to the Lions that first year. So my first year, I tell everybody, I was a journeyman that played on three teams and never played a down. Not the best way to break into your pro career. And then I played uh, 12 more years for the Lions straight after that, and we got to win some championships, got some all-stars, and, and made a lot of great friends and memories. My uh, my buddy, Richie Leone, it probably was after you were gone, but he, plays, uh, he played a year for uh, the Lions – uh, he's, they he kicked two years ago. Two years ago for yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. He he's got old Thunderfoot there. He can let her rip. He, he played is. just after me. He um he was he was my roommate in college, so I get to uh you know kind of grow up with him. So uh, that's really cool. And then I've had a, a another former teammate, and I can't remember maybe the Red Blacks. I think is he plays offensive yeah. line for them, yeah. uh, Sir Vincent Rogers. So um, yeah, he's a beast. He's he, a beast. He is, and, and he's, you know, obviously an awesome guy and, and won, I think, Offensive Lineman of the Year one of the, a few years back. And so – He did. Uh, uh, you know, obviously everyone really proud of him. But, uh, you, you know, you got a lot of inter- interesting story in a, in a few uh, – whatever it was, a minute that you told your story, a lot yeah. of, of cool things uh, that you can go back to. So I'd like to kind of drill into what happened where you didn't start football till 11th grade. I mean, it, especially yeah. at a time where it seems like kids are starting earlier and earlier. Um, you know, 11th grade is – obviously fairly late for uh you know to start football really late and and I grew up in a family that played football so I'm I'm one of six kids I'm the youngest of five boys and and I had four older brothers that I looked up to as heroes and two of them actually uh, played pro football for a little bit so I had two of my older brothers one played for the BC Lions for a year when I was in the seventh grade and then my other brother Bruce played for Calgary St. Peters for a year then he went over and played pro in, in Germany for seven years so I grew up in the sport and I grew up wanting to play it 
what happened with me is a uh, twofold story. In the eighth grade, I was, I was, for lack of a better word, a big fat kid. Great big fat kid that thought I was really something special. <laughs> but I'd never been challenged because I was this great big fat kid that, that uh, had older brothers that were superstars. So no one would ever do anything to me. And then I went out for eighth grade football. And I, I was terrible. I was, you know, I wasn't nearly as good as I envisioned myself to be, as most people aren't. And it really crushed me. And at 13, I quit. I quit the sport of football after like a week. I, it wasn't very good. I, I couldn't handle not being good at something. It was really demoralizing to me. And then I went back to school, thought, you know, I'm, I don't need this nonsense, whatever. You know, I, I wasn't tough enough of a kid at that time. And what happened after that was, it's, a, it's kind of a long story, so I'll compress it as best I can. I got, I got really sick. I didn't know what was wrong. My stomach was in crazy pain. And and long story short, I'm stubborn, so I don't tell my parents when something's wrong. And we realized that I'd blown my appendix for six days before I'd let them know. So I had a blown appendix for six days, which Jeez, if anyone knows really anything dangerous. about that, I, well, I shouldn't be doing a podcast with you today. Uh, it, I should be some memory that hopefully someone speaks nicely of. I should not be alive. I mean, it was just ridiculous what happened and what I allowed to happen because I was scared to complain about a stomachache in my family, let alone a blown appendix. Anyways. We go, to, we go to the hospital, and again, long story short, I'm in there for six weeks because once you have a blown appendix, uh, there's, no, there's no surgery to have. They just kind of go in with a vacuum and try to suck out the poison before it kills you. So that was a really, really long go, and I got to the point where, uh, you know, I was pretty much on my deathbed. I, I, the funeral arrangements were being made. I was going to be done, and, and I pulled through, and I pulled through it. Now I came out of the hospital. I wasn't this great big fat kid anymore. I lost about 100 pounds. Not the best way to go about losing weight, by the way. <laughs> no. And you go back to school. No, and so now I go back to school, and, and you know, now I'm in the ninth grade. I, I'm not a big kid. I'm not playing any sports. I had no confidence. I didn't know where I fit in. Uh, you know, I didn't know where I had friends. I mean, you sitting in the hospital for six weeks during the beginning of the ninth grade. You, you come back, you're kind of lost. And I really didn't know what to do. And, and then the 10th grade, I'm still kind of lost. And football seemed like this big, scary sport now because I quit it in the eighth grade. How could I ever come back to it now when I'm not even a big kid anymore? But you know what? I, I gave this. I gave this kind of part in my, in, my, in my TEDx talk I gave on football, and I was really fortunate that we had a great program at my school and, and a coach that knew my family, and he coached my brothers. And he, you know, in the hallway kind of said, look, why don't you come on out? We'd love to have you out on the team. And he gave me that opportunity, and I felt amazing for someone to say, why don't you come out? We think, we think you'd be great. And I, I'm sure he said it to everybody in the hallway, but to me it was, wow, may, maybe I can. And for whatever reason, it sparked an interest again, and my parents were so happy I was going to do something. And you know, I, I built it up again, and I'm going to do this. And, and I went out, and of course, I was terrible. But this time, I said, you know what, we're going to stick with it. And I'm going to, I'm going to gut this out. And I, I'd been through enough with that hospital uh, visit two years ago that I said, you know, I'm not going to quit on myself ever again, and, and I'm going to work my way through this. And, and, you know, as you guys know, and we all know, the great thing about the sport of football is you put in the work, you will get better. It's a sport you can learn from working hard at it. And I, and I learned that. And I grinded my way, you know, slowly on the field in the 11th grade. I got in the last two games of the year. And then by grade 12, I got better and better. I got bigger and stronger. And I got my way into our local university. And, you know, I was just one of those stories that was kind of a slow grind. I was never a blue chip at any level. You can just imagine I started late. I, I'm, not a, I'm not an amazing athlete, just a kid that once I hunkered down and wanted to do this, uh, I wouldn't stop until I, I did what it took and, and, you know, got my way to university and, crazy i'm talking so much here but my, my my university story got even crazier because i ended up missing i i know I, I missed three of my five seasons i missed three of my five eligibility seasons i go in my freshman year they redshirt me and as they do with linemen right they say get bigger right. i showed up about 240 pounds they say get bigger so you know what does that mean it means eat everything eat everything in sight and when you had a blown appendix from like five years ago your liver doesn't work very well so you start eating eight nine ten thousand calories a day the body doesn't like that so much right so <laughs> 
my stomach blows out again. And I basically have ulcers all through my stomach. I got all this internal bleeding. The doctor said, you can't play sports anymore. So I had to sit out three straight years of university. I moved home for a year. I was gone from the team. I lost another hundred pounds during that time. Oh my but I didn't God. Stop. Didn't stop this time. I said, Nope, we're going to find a way back. And, and I, 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 you know, I figured it out. I worked hard. I didn't quit. And I made my way back to my senior year. And fortunate enough, I was an NAI all American, a crazy story. I guess I impressed the guys at the Canadian combine, you know, lifting weights and running and doing all this stuff. And, and they drafted me. Toronto Argonauts drafted me as a first round pick. It was a crazy story. And then I go out and get cut as their first round pick, which I don't think ever happened before. But when I look back now, it made perfect sense because I really hadn't played much football. You know, I really didn't play to the 11th. I didn't start to the 11th grade. Didn't really get on the field to the end. Played grade 12. Missed three of my five university seasons. Sure, I was big and strong and obviously did well on these silly testing they do, these Wonderlick tests and all this other nonsense. And I thought I was great. But I really hadn't played the sport much. So when I came to the pro level, I was still at the very beginning of learning this sport. And so just like every other level of high school and college, my pro career was kind of the same. It was a hard beginning and it became a long grind that, that you know, you progressed over time and incrementally. But I ended up playing 13 years. You know, I got to captain the team for many years, became an all-star as the careers went, as the career went on, and we got to win some championships. So, you know, mine is a testament of, of not great athletic ability, but just stubborn determination and the willing to be coached and, and work hard at what, 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 you're, what you're told to do and just stick with it. So there you go. Do you think the big shift came from the hospital, you know, that six-week yeah. hospital visit? I mean, you had to – fight through that or you know like you said you'd be a memory people were talking about so you think that is what you know kind of caused you through later years in high school later years in college to just keep persevering uh, to play football 100 percent. so when I do my keynotes now with, with with teams in high schools I I point to kind of four main factors that I would attribute to any success of mine to would be you know the ability to have a vision have something that means so much to you but the two big parts in the middle are learning to absolutely to, to never quit to, to learning what that really means to not quit on yourself when you, when it's so easy to. And the second part of that is surrounding yourself with the right people. So the part of the story I didn't tell you is when I'm sitting in the hospital, I was whatever it was, 13 years old. I mean, that's a scary place. You're sitting there all night, you got tubes coming out of you and you don't have any food. And, you know, nurses are always whispering because they don't want you to hear the bad news. And it's a scary time. And my family would rotate who would stay with me. My brothers would come by after work or school, but my mom would always do the night shift and she'd sit with me because she knew how scary it was. I wasn't sleeping. You're just lying there, rotting away. And there was a night deep into that, maybe five and a half, six weeks in, and I, I leaned to her and I was going to, I said, Mom, I, I don't have any fight left. I, I said, I love you guys. Tell Dad I love him. Tell my brothers and sisters I love them. I'm going to die. Like, I don't, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to close my eyes. I have no fight. And my mom, you know, I don't know what your mom would do or other moms would do. She stands up and she looks me in the eyes and says, Get up right now you get up and so you got to realize you haven't been up six weeks. So there's some heavy atrophy going on. Like I cannot get up. She goes, get up. I said, I can't. And she goes, okay. She puts her arm around me and pulls me out of the bed. And she says, you lean on me. We're going walking tonight. And you know what happens in the hospital when you get someone up, they're not supposed to all these bells and whistles go off and these nurses come running from all over the place. She says, look, just get out of the way. She dragged me through the hospital that night. She would not let me quit on myself. And I was out of the hospital about four days after that. She dragged me through till the sun came up because she taught me you do not quit. And she was strong enough for me in that moment to remind me that you surround yourself with, you choose who you get to surround yourself with for the most part. You know, not everyone can choose their parents or nobody gets to choose their parents. But you, once you got out of that hospital, it was, okay, who's, who's do you want around you? People that are going to help you through when times get tough or people that aren't going to care. 
And are they going to know what matters most to you to help you when that fight gets too hard? So those are two key things. I mean, you got to know not to quit on yourself, but you also got to be smart enough to be okay asking for help and make sure that you've chosen good people to be around you that know what matters to you, that they can pull you through and you can do the same thing for them. So I've learned that once I left that I will never quit on myself again. And I'm smart enough to, to not wait so long to ask for help. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm okay with a little bit of help when life gets too hard. And that's the other thing that football is so grateful, right? You, you are part of a team that everybody will pull each other through. And that is a, a powerful thing that I think we lack a lot in the world once you get off. We lack a lot of that in the world today. Coach, I think, you know, and, and not only that, you know, going through the adversity and then you end up becoming a, a two-time Grey Cup champion, you know, kind of describe that, that feeling to be able to, you know, hold that thing, you know, all the work and all the, the suffering that you'd kind of put into that. Just kind of describe that a little bit, what it's like to finally maybe reach the pinnacle of your football career. Well, we won it in 06 and we won it in 2011. So a bit of a gap in the 06 one. Uh, I was, I was really, really fortunate. It was part of a team that was really stacked. I mean, we were really good. And since, uh, you know, 04, we'd lost in the championship game. We lost in the great cup, which was really heartbreaking because it was first time you ever go there. And the realization that, you know, you don't get to do this all the time. This is a special thing. You wonder, will we ever get back? And in 05, we were one game short. And so this monkey was kind of building on our back. And then 06, we went out and did it. And it sounds crazy now, but for a moment, it was almost a relief win because we were so loaded and we didn't know were we going to get this done. Hmm. But it, it was magical. And, and then 07, we were so great again, but we were one game short. And then the wheels started falling off the bus. And, 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 and you know, that, that, that team sort of moved on from either retirement and, and trades and free agency and all that nonsense. By 2011, was special because I was already 34 years old. Uh, turning, I turned 35 that year in that season. And, you know, that's pretty old now. You realize every game, every moment now could be your last because this game does not last long for most. And we started that season 0-5. Gee. We started 2011 0-5, and I believe we're the only professional football team in any league to ever win a championship after going 1-6 to begin the season. We won the next one, then we got blown out in, in, the, in the following game. We were 1-6. Wow. And we were – and I, I, I was on a radio show every week, and I had to sit here and defend the team because I had to come in after practice, and everybody wants everybody gone. TM's <laughs> too old, head coach too old, you're too old, Angus. Yeah, okay. We were 1-6. and six. <laughs> And the beautiful thing about this story, and I share it often – we made, I believe, one roster move. So we went on a nine-game win streak after that, and we didn't change. It wasn't because we airlifted in a better team. We found our way. We bonded together. We gave the old us-versus-the-world mentality, and we hunkered down. We, you know, we, we did all these little things that the teams do to change the culture and the mindset, and we went out and ran the table, and we never lost another game again. I think it was nine straight. We rattled off that, well, whatever, 18-game season, and we, had, we won our two playoff games, so whatever that was. And the best part was the back end of that season, we were blowing teams out. We destroyed everybody. And the championship that year was in our home stadium. So we rolled all the way back and won the Great Cup at home. It was insane. So that one, to me, is something I will never forget because my career could have been over at any time. I mean, I was already past the expiry date of most people playing my position at my age. We were able to win under those types of uh, – that type of situation was something that now I carry with me the rest of my life where – there is nothing that can't be turned around because I've been through something that should never been turned around. I was part of it. So, you know, you talk about what you take with you when you're done. There's so many things, but the one, one thing is all the things I've been through in my life personally and on a team, you realize there's very little in this world that you can't turn around if you're willing to hunker down and put in the work and bond together and get going. 
<laughs> I mean, that's pretty incredible, especially the second one, you know. Yeah. One and six is, is pretty wild. And I think it's even, you know, more mind-blowing to me because it's with a, you know, professional team. And that seems to me yeah. more like, you know, like you said, older guys that kind of understand, hey, we're 0-5, no one ever wins from this. Uh, I can still do a little bit and get what I'm supposed to get and roll on to next season where, you know, maybe college high school teams are a little more gung-ho to, to – circle the wagons and go after it for each other where uh, you know a professional team that does that is even more astounding to me well what was what was probably the proudest part of that whole story was by like Owen four Owen five the media is every day after practice they want who to blame right they're looking for who do we crucify here? So they go to the offense trying to get them to say it's the defense. They go to the defense trying to, you know, well, we're doing our job. It's the offense. Because unlike the NFL, our contracts in the CFL are truly not guaranteed. Hmm. So, you know, unlike we'll coast through and they will be next year, in our league, you know, you can sign a three-year, four-year deal all you want. And sure, you get your signing bonus, but you can get cut after any game. So what was shocking and really, really memorable for me was the guys we had on our team Never sold someone else out when it was, you know, protect your job, get rid of someone because you got to feed your family. No, nobody did that. And that was really, really impressive where nobody blamed the coaches, offense didn't blame defense because you and I both know it sounds good until someone's not going to be able to feed their family next week and you find out who you're really in the foxhole with. And we had guys that all held firm. And that was something that you can go win with then. Once you knew that, that, you know, everyone isn't on, everyone isn't out to save themselves. We're really actually a real team, which as you said, that's hard to find in professional sports we were able to rally together because I realized you actually have my back. Like if we say this stuff and everyone has these nice phrases and put these posters up, but people don't realize what that means until someone's not going to pay their bills next week or someone's, you know, someone's got to look for work and you still have my back. That's, I think what we were able to rally around. And it spoke volumes to our, to our GM and coach Wally Bono at the time where he re, he knew the power of choosing character before straight talent because that's what's really going to matter when the chips come down and that's what's really going to make a team not just a bunch of talented players and those are kind of guys you could turn ships around with no it is it's incredible and and another incredible thing I think is for anyone but um, you know especially such a long career is is crazy to do especially I think on the offensive line you know my high school coach played 10 years in the NFL and and it's just to me it's crazy as an offensive lineman for go anywhere over five years is, is you know crazy but you get up above 10 it's um something truly you know remarkable to me uh, so I know you know everyone that's been in it for a while they always going to attribute some of it to being lucky and they stayed you know fairly healthy but there's also I think there's got to be some other attributes to guys that do make it longer in their careers older and, and obviously some of it is yeah you didn't get a, a major injury but Part of that has to be taking care of yourself. Part of it has to be nutrition. Part of it has to be being tough. I, you know, I'm sure there's sprains and breaks and, and all that stuff through that time. So what are some of the things that you attribute um, to having such a long career? Maybe not just with you, maybe other guys that you know and guys that you've been around as well. Yeah, well, I think there, there is that baseline of taking care of yourself. And I would say even, you know, I, I'd like to call myself, you know, I played recently, but even now, we're moving into a new world and I played 01 to 13, but the, the quality, uh, the quality of work people put into taking care of themselves now is, is ridiculous, but it's, it's an, it's a necessity. And I think you have to be willing to commit yourself 
to, to doing all the things it takes now to, to keep your body functioning and repairing it as best as possible, where, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you could do some of it and, and you could, you could, you know, crank it up when you needed to here and there. But now it's, it's a year round process and all the, all the box has to be ticked. The, the nice thing for me was because I was an underdog and starting late, I had to do that stuff from the get go to make up time because I never was a, I never was a great athlete. I never was this uh, guy that just walked out and was better than players. So I was always from the beginning in high school, it was about, you know, I got to work out better than these guys. I got to rest better than these guys or I didn't have a chance. So that was ingrained in me that kind of work ethic to do all the boring daily things that you got to do year round. I was always doing that. And that wasn't outside influence. That was just internally realizing that was what it was going to take. But I think as I got older, I, I learned to realize again, at the pro level, everyone has a better, better looking body than mine. I mean, I, I I'm six one. I was 300 pounds. I was a little fire hydrant. I was not what they wanted physically. So I had to do what, what, what it took. And to me, I had to be stubbornly tough, and I knew this, and, and, and I knew I couldn't get injured. Because I knew you get injured, now there's an opportunity for, to bring someone else in. So you got to do what you got to do. Take care of yourself, and psychologically, you got to be willing to become tough enough to keep going. But what I also did was I did everything possible to make players around me better. And even if that required cheating a little on my end in terms of, I mean, I'm playing center, so here I am. You can know the offense, and you can know what you're supposed to do which, you know, at center is a big responsibility, but I could also learn everything everyone else, everyone else is supposed to do to a level that I was everyone's crutch. So I could go out there and walk everyone through everything on any very given play, and they would realize when I'm not there, things just aren't operating as well. People's confidence isn't just quite as good. And I needed to make sure I could bring to the table whatever it took to just make things work better. And I, I attribute that to uh, my coach used to give us all these things that what it meant to be a pro and and one of them was, was make plays. And I always thought initially that meant physically, you know, and it does on the service level. You go out there and you're someone that makes plays. But I learned I wasn't the guy that was going to be pancaking people all over the place. I just didn't have that physical ability. For, so, so to me, making plays was making any play better because I was involved. And that could be anything, right? When you are out there, things are just a little bit better. And you got to be aware enough to go, how can I improve what's happening? And that, 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 that just takes a conscious decision to be, a, be someone that makes things better and doesn't create a problem, and whatever that may be. And that's the way I looked at my career. If I'm going to last, I have to become valuable beyond the physical attributes because every year I get older, every year I'm still built like a turtle, every year I'm now overpaid, I'm too old, I'm falling apart. So how can I crank it up more and bring more to the table that without me there, they can't even put their finger on it, but things just aren't working as well. And that became kind of an art form, but it became kind of an obsession. And I think if you ingrain that in people's minds, when you show up to work, how can I make whatever we're doing right now, how can I make it better? What can I bring to the table? And that might be something no one ever sees, but you feel it. And you kind of know it because things work better when you're involved. And maybe that doesn't answer the question well, but it really was a strategic way to go about looking at my career to make sure that I could, I could keep playing longer than someone that probably should have my position instead of me. I think that's a thing, you know, that, that so many fans don't understand. And, it, you know, usually it's only, you know, maybe some, some offensive line coaches and head coaches, you know, that they, they kind of sit there and they'd be like, well, how the heck can, you know, Angus Reed still playing? You know, he's only 6'1", he's only 300 right. pounds, you know, and, and, and they, they look at all the, just the physical attributes. It's an NFL draft. It's a combine, you know, kind of deal. When in all actuality, you know, 
the, the guy that, that holds everyone together, the guy that holds people accountable on the team, the guy that's the example, the guy that's telling people what to do on the field. And it's like you said, when that guy's not there, things don't just operate the right way. It, it's such an overlooked thing. And I imagine you probably talk quite a bit about that in your motivational speaking as well, being that difference for your team or your business. Yeah, and I because here's the thing. We all talk about how great football is for raising young boys into men, right? It's just the underlying message. But when we break it down and say, well, why? Why? And it, it has to be those things that transfer. Because if you are learning things that don't transfer, then it, then, then it serves no purpose off the field. So if all you're taking from football is that I've added 400 pounds to my bench press and I know how to base block a zero technique or I know how to scoop reach a, a backside three, well, that doesn't transfer, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's nice to watch. But if you have, if you, you know, if you know how to uh, wham block on a one or whatever you may be, if that's all that you have taken from football or you've realized that you are physically superior to someone else and you can just dominate them, that's not helping you anywhere outside of the field. So I think the beautiful thing that I think the great coaches do this too, is they, they emphasize those kind of intangibles and those, those human characteristics of improving people around you. Because if you can see and think, how can I make situations better, whatever that may be. And that's always a moving target. That's always a fluid statement that to me carries with you. When you walk off the field, you have a mindset now of I'm going to work my butt off every day. And I'm going to try to make whatever group I'm with and whatever situation we're in, I'm going to bring everything I can to make it better. And that, to me, you become someone people want to hire, people want to start businesses with, if people want to start a family with. Like you have, you have learned something that works on the field, works in the boardroom, works in the classroom, works in the home, works everywhere. And that is how this sport, more than any other one, can really help young people grow up to be productive adults by realizing it's about what can you bring to make this unit, this team, this game better. I'd kind of like to go back to, you talked about, you know, three or four things that, that each person should have. And you talked about, you know, never quitting, uh, surrounding yourself right. with the right people. One of the big ones you said was a uh, vision. So kind of yeah. where I'm curious is when did you start to get the vision of, Hey, I want to play professional football. Because I would assume so, it was in 11th grade, you know, and then you missed three years of college. So when was that like, hey, this is what I'm chasing? So it, it kind of was. It began in the 11th. And here's what I tell people, and I'm not saying I'm right or I'm wrong, but all I can do is tell you what worked for me. You know, there's a lot about goal setting and people writing down goals. I never really did that. I, I guess I'm more visual, more creative. So I always built a vision. So I would look at what I wanted to become. In the 11th grade, my offensive line coach at my high school was a GA down at University of Notre Dame when they won the 88 national championship. So he became kind of an early mentor of mine and he was a big Chris Zorch fan. So we'd see, he'd show me photos and evidence. And I, and then growing up in Vancouver, uh, UW was just down the street. So Steve Edmond was the big time guy at the time. So we'd see all these pictures and photos. And all of a sudden I, I got, I got, in, I was in awe of these guys. And I started looking at them, looking at them. And I'd see whatever film I could gather. I mean, this is pre-internet, right? I'm dating myself. So it was either streets and Smith's photos or some old VHS <laughs> tape that my, that my coach somehow had. And, and I, I could build these visions. And I remember thinking, I want to be like that. And I'd watch it again and again and again. And as I got into grade 12, I wanted to play like that. And I, I was foolish enough to tuck my jersey up to show my very white, very unsculpted belly like them. But mine just wasn't <laughs> the same. But I was very good at, at, at taking an image and making it me and becoming that. And what I talk to kids about is the power of visualization is once you create what you want to look like or what you want to be doing, and I mean down to the shoelaces tied, like I mean great detail, 
the power of that becomes you can't erase it, change it, or alter or forget it like you can sometimes a goal. It's burned into your vision. It haunts you. And so all my three years I missed university, I, you know, once I got into the whole O-line world, it, it, was, it was the great Dave Remington from the old Nebraska days. Like, I wanted to be these guys, so I made myself into them visually. And all those, that three years in college, that was haunting me every day. That's why I couldn't quit anymore, because I couldn't get away from it. And I made it. So it, it, it got me up and kept me looking for answers. I got to become this person. And so I visualized it. And then at the pro level, uh, my, my O-line coach, Dan Durazio, for 11 years at the pro level, we would watch. You know, I'd watch guys like Jeff Saturday and we'd watch, uh, you know, Kevin Moai and all these guys. And I'd watch it so many times. I would just make that neat and I would see myself what they're doing and I could burn that in. And when I'm out there, that's what I saw myself doing. And so I am so big on visualization and it's not necessarily, uh, you know, visualizing yourself doing it. It starts earlier than that. It's creating to me the perfect image of how you see yourself. And the easiest way I always found was, you pick your, your role models, heroes, whatever you want to call them. You pick those kind of ideal players that you, that you look up to or marvel and want to emulate, and you study it like crazy. And I slowly made myself those people, you know, bits and pieces from each and created who I wanted to become. And that did start in high school, and it grew its own momentum. When I was in the weight room through my college years, you know, I was part of that great 94-95 Nebraska O-line with Zach Wieger and Aaron Graham and all these guys, and I would see – I'd have those pictures everywhere. So I went lifting. I had my socks up with my gray shorts and my black high tops with my white laces, just the same. And I'm a college kid. It didn't matter. It, it, it helped me get that energy and motivation from the image that I built. And that's what kept driving me all the way through my pro years. It was, it was studying the guys that I wanted to be more like and finding ways to burn that image into me and creating it as myself, which gave me tremendous confidence to go out there because I had to rep it again and again in my head, being that, that image that I thought was perfection powerful thing coach I couldn't agree more I mean you do a lot of the the same stuff I mean you, you find something that you know in, in in Harper and I we've we've read a lot of books about it but you almost become obsessed about it you know and, yeah, and some time. people some people want to say that that's a, a negative well it's like well you got to find the thing that makes you tick and you got to find yeah. the thing that you're passionate about otherwise you're going to really kind of just sleep through sleepwalk through life and not really find anything you're passionate about. And it sounds like you were able to do that at a, at a relatively, you know, young age as a, as a junior in high school, you know, Hey man, this is, this is what I really want to do. And obviously yeah. now that passion is just flowing through you as you do all of these uh, speaking engagements as well. Is that kind of taken the place of, you know, not being able to, to be on the field and, and kind of let that roll? Yeah, I think two things. One is it's, it's the gratitude. It's the, it's the paying it back or paying it forward, whatever you want to call it. You know, I, I, I'm really, really driven now, but I, I look back and it was, you know, Coach Howie in high school and it was my brothers and my family. And when I got to university, it was a lot of the seniors when I was freshman that took me under the wing. And then at the pro level was Coach Durazio and a lot of these older pros that took me under the wing. So, you know, I had the drive, but they gave me a lot of the direction and kind of guided that energy and, and, and channeled it. So now I see myself with, you know, 20 plus years of football success, whatever you want to call that, all in me. And I'm looking and I speak at these schools and these teams and, and these junior highs or these universities. And there's a lot of kids that I see. There's energy there. It's somewhere. Some of them have it out. Some of them have it. But maybe they're still looking for guidance, direction, uh, some sort of uh, specific motivation or, or a reason to believe that they can. Because a lot of kids have that energy, but they, they, they still don't think they could do it. And I can come out and say, listen, look at me. And I'm, guys, you see me. I am not what you think an offensive lineman should be like. Yet I played longer than almost all of them. And I can give them that, hey. 
yes, you can. Here's my story because I had no business doing it. So if it's what you want to do, you can lean on me for that example, just like I leaned on my mom in the hospital and I'll pull you through right now to get you going. And then you can take it from there because what most kids need, they just need a little confidence and someone to believe in them. So for me, it, it, yeah, you know, I get out there and, and I speak and that gives me that energy and that rush like I'm on the field. But really what I'm doing is I'm paying back all the gratitude I have for so many people that helped guide my, my energy, helped give me confidence and help, uh, you know, help me see that it was possible. And now I want to do that for everybody else. And, you know, I don't speak coach about something you said about a, a, a obsession. Sure. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it, you got to be obsessed to do anything great in this world. And that's the truth. And I, and you know, people want all these, all these nice balanced, you know, these balanced people will well, balance them doing anything great. Right, balance just kind of gets through the day. You're kind of happy. You're kind of sad because you know what? That's balance. I don't want that, right? You want to achieve something great with your time on this planet. And I believe, and, and I believe what it also does for our youth, you become obsessive about something like football. It organizes your day and gives you the right excuse to avoid all the evil that's out mm -hmm. there because this is what matters. And once you stake your, stake your, you know, put the stake in the ground, now you got to work out, you got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to do your homework, you got to study. You know, you, you got to do all these things to fuel that obsession. That doesn't give you time to get into trouble. Right? <laughs> evil, evil exists in idle hands. So being obsessed about something that fundamentally makes you a better person is the greatest gift we can give to our youth. And that's why the sport of football is so great, because it organizes their day, it organizes their week, and it allows the most kids to partake in this obsession about challenging yourself every day to be better and not giving room, space, or time to waste on nonsense that is unproductive, could be dangerous, as otherwise just wasting the time. I think it's powerful. Well, I, you know, when we talk about obsession, it's something that me and Walls have talked about quite a bit, but, um, you know, it's something I also see play out a lot in college players and, and NFL guys, I'm sure pro guys as well, but, um, and we got a lot of these guys coming to us, talking to us that are going to be coaches, and it's like you've got this obsession that you've had for, you know, in your case, like you said, 20 years, and then all yeah. of a sudden, one day you don't have it anymore, right? And, and there's some guys, they don't have a backup plan, so or, or not even a backup plan. They don't know what they're going to do after their, their football career stops. Now, like you said, now they've got a ton of idle time and nothing to obsess over. And I think there are a lot of guys, at least for a few years, I don't want to say depression. I, I don't know what the right word is, but they're almost lost. They don't know what to obsess over. And, and obviously, a lot of times that can lead into bad things. But um, did you kind of already have an idea of what you were going to do after football, or was that something you had to find once you were in that spot? I didn't really know, and, and I, I, I have firsthand experience of what you're speaking of. I have a, not myself, but a lot of my friends hit that void. You know, and I, usually I saw a lot of it happen with guys that careers cut, uh, injuries cut their careers short. So there was a lot left on the table. So they, they would do anything to get back because it was just too much unfinished business. So one, there are a couple things I had going for me. One, I, I, I played myself out. Like I played 13 years. I was 37 years old. I was done. Like I couldn't do it anymore to the level that that was acceptable to me. And the other thing I had going for me was I am part of a good solid family. So, you know, I'm one of six kids, youngest five boys with, with parents and they came to all the games. But the beautiful thing in my life was, you know, we win a great cup. Next day I go to the family for dinner. I'm just the younger brother of five boys, you know, like they, <laughs> there was no, no in that, 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 but that, that's an important thing here because I think we yeah. are in a dangerous place in today's world. And we see it a lot in Canada with the hockey like you will see in, in U.S. football and, and basically any sport now where there's multiple millions of dollars at the end of the rainbow, where if you are, are talented at a young age, 
even within your own family, you've become a celebrity. You know, you, there, there's a stardism now where you are treated differently. And the problem is, and the dangerous thing that happens is these kids believe their value is in playing the sport. And that's a really scary thing for someone to, to get in their head because then as you get older, that's why people love you, cheer for you, and pay, for, pay you so much. And they believe they are a football player. And yeah, I try to remind guys, so it's what you do. It's your obsession. You've chosen to do it. What matters most is how you go about doing that. That's who you are. And that you can take with you. And I can't tell them what they should be doing afterwards, but they need to realize there is absolutely no loss of worth or value because you're someone that works your butt off or, you know, all the attributes that people say you are, that's who you are. Being a football player is just what you did for the last 20 years. That's what you chose to pour who you are into it. And we are, we're crossing that line where we're creating, making it very blurry and hard for people to see the difference where, you know, people are told to build their brands and then they become the brand. Now, when they're not playing the sport, now, now they're nothing. And yep. like, no, you are how you went about the sport. And that's the beautiful thing. We have to stress that. And that's where we have to, again, reward, uh, you know, the energy, the effort, because that's who someone is. And that you can do doing anything. But, you know, some people say without football, I'm nothing. Well, you know, you're the same person. And, and how you went about that sport, you can do that with anything because you've proven it. You've done it. And so I, I caution, and I think we need to kind of remind or be weary of, you know, super, making, making our youth into superstars too early because they're very young and easily confused. And, and when parents now are praising them for how good they are at a sport, there's a lot of uh, inclination to believe that's their value in life is playing this. And when that day ends, whether they're 17, 18, or 25, and I don't care how many millions of dollars they have in the bank, you guys know, if you feel worthless because you're not doing what you think everybody loves you for, Right. That is a dangerous place. So really good for me was I was in a family that parents cheered me on on a Saturday night. Come Sunday, I'm just their little brother again. Like there was a, a balancing act that that's what I did. I was really good at it. They were proud of what I did. But it doesn't change who I am in the family. I'm still the same person. And that really helped me on the transfer because, you know, I, I, I realized being a football player wasn't who I was. It was what I did. I worked hard at it. It was my session. I loved it. But who I am was a guy that wanted to be part of a team. I like to try to win things. I like to try to figure things out. I like to help guys around me. I like to win with guys. I'm, I'm, I'm a team kind of person. So you know, I get in the business world here and they think I'm nuts because I'm in high-fiving everybody because I've been <laughs> football culture. But it's fun <laughs> right. for me because I want to go win things. We want to strategize. Let's go beat these guys tomorrow night and we're going to go have some fun. If we lose, let's break out the proverbial game film and figure it out. I, I like solving problems, making things better because I'm there and making people around me feel great you know, about what we're doing. And, you got to realize what do you really love about football? And that's where people don't want, they don't go there. They just think it's football. Why? And if you realize why you love it, you can usually find out, you know, to, 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 to satisfy that, whether it be, you know, I, I don't know. It's not a perfect answer, but I think we need to begin with making sure that we do separate people's value isn't because they play sports. It's what they bring to the sport. And that's something that will never end because the sport ends for them one day. I think that's extremely important hearing it from guys like you because I remember going up through college and I can distinctively remember me and my best friend sitting there and making fun of some random people that come in there and tell us that and have never done anything it seemed like to us. I'm sure they've done great things, but we didn't hardly pay attention, turned it off. Uh, they've never done anything in their life. They don't understand how important football is, how good we are at football. Right? And that's all you think, and, and then you get out of it. And you're like, oh, I probably should have listened to some of these people. Uh, but sure. I think it's extremely important to hear that from guys that, that these players, you know, trust and, and look up to already. Oh, this is a guy that's played yeah. professional 15 years. He's saying this. Okay, now maybe right or wrong for them to listen more to someone like that. They just 
seems like they do. I know I would have. Uh, so it, I think it's, it's important true. from that. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's, you know, you can message all you want, but the, it's, it's the messenger that matters. It's the credibility that comes from it. And I think we need more of this. And I know, I know the NFL and I know the CFL is trying to do a lot more of this kind of peer mentorship where they're getting recently retired guys and, you know, exposing current players to the good, bad, and the ugly of the afterlife and, and hopefully helping them see what really transitions and how you transition. And, and it doesn't have to be about being a big star. It's about living a good life and contributing to whatever the next phase is, just like you did on this team. It's just probably not going to have 70,000 people cheering for you. And that's okay. And you've you got to get ready for that. And, I, and otherwise, if all you know is uh, I'm a star, people love me. And the more they love me, the more I get paid. That, that's a cliff that you fall off of very hard the longer you keep going down that road. And unfortunately, in our world, especially with social media and the celebrityism that, that we love today, it's what, it's what our youth are chasing and nobody's stopping them. And that's really scary. You got parents I, encouraging it. That's insane. That's yes. child abuse to me. Like, oh, to me it, that's child abuse. You are setting your child up for a lifetime of depression later. You need to be their parents, not their cheerleader, not their biggest fans outside of obviously taking care of them as a parent, but you can't be their cheerleader. You need to be their parent. And there's a big difference. You need to help them grow up, not help them, you know, pad their ego because, you know, you, 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 you want to tell them how amazing they are because they rushed for 200 yards. No, they're amazing because they did all the little things that are going to matter in life when that game eventually ends. You rushed for 200 yards because there was 10 other guys on the field doing yeah. their job. <laughs> you know, yeah, you make sure you're right. You make sure you're writing your 10, your 10 thank you notes tomorrow. That's why, you, that's why we're proud of you because you went and thanked all those guys and got them all a muffin at breakfast or, or whatever it may be. And those are the things that are going to matter. And that's why you become a star and a leader because, you know, you, you see big picture. You realize what's going on out there. You get out of your own head and you realize you're part of something. And, and, and that's what the world really is about. And that, to me, lasts much longer uh, than, yeah, than, any, than any game that you thought you were pretty special in or, or whatever that may be. Coach, I lo love what you're saying. You know, basically you're just talking about, you know, changing the, the thinking, you know, you, you taking what you get from football, right? You're, you're already tougher than most of the people in the world. If you're able to make it professionally, you're already going to be a harder worker. You already understand, you know, what it's like to work these really, really long hours and overcome adversity and do those things. Use those things to your advantage. Now, when you get into the business world, use that competitive nature you know, I, I just think so many of them, like you said, they're focusing on the wrong things because their thinking's bad. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's not, and, and most of it's not their fault because that's all they've been fed, right? You, you've been yep. fed that and you haven't, and here's the thing, I, I gave a keynote for this big corporation the other day and I'm looking at these guys going, you know, they get nervous in meetings. I said, what are you guys nervous about? He, he said, you, you got to understand something. Let's give you a little perspective here. I, I, when I went to work, I spent in front of thousands and thousands of the fans with some 300 pound guy trying to literally run over my body and sometimes he did so all these fans now were physically booing me for my performance and then i had to get in the car and if i was stupid enough to turn on the radio on the ride home and after all the fans say why well, i gotta get cut because i suck and then i show up to work the next day and they put on the big screen the film and they put it in slow motion and they watch it again and again and then they circle it and then they pause it i'm saying what happened in your meeting did the client say no thank you we don't we want to go in a different direction and this is what you're scared of and so when you talk to other players, too, and they're nervous of entering the other world, and like you said, Coach, look at what you guys are, are used to. You have been prepared much more, a much tougher environment than 99% of the world ever has faced. You don't need to be scared. What you guys have done on a daily basis in terms of, in terms of being pushed, being coached, being critiqued, uh, be, you know, being, being corrected, 
and sometimes just just straight up being booed at doesn't happen in the real world. Like you go out there and you do something and people say yes or no or they go in a different direction. It's not scary. Football's hard. And once you've gone through it, you realize that you take that with you, that mindset, that, that what you've probably done is already harder than anything else you'll ever do. You're going to be just fine. But, you know, that message, as you said, I think has to come from people that have done it. So it has that credibility. But I know it's truth because I've gone to the other world. And, you know, I get in the business world and uh, a buddy of mine goes, you're fine talking to the CEO. It's, you know, X hundred million dollar company. You're good. I'm like, what's he going to do? He's going to say yes or no. Like, he's not going to bring a rip hump move and put me on my head. And if he does, well, then I'm fine with that because I know how to counter that anyways. But you know what? What am I scared of? Like, why are you guys scared? He's in a suit for crying out loud. He's been sitting on his butt for the last four hours. He can't move very fast. Why are you so scared? And so you've got to realize what you bring with you is that confidence. That what you said, I, I like what you said, Coach. What we've done, even at the high school level, it's harder than 99% of the other world will ever do. So you go out and you try whatever venture or business, whatever you want to do, you can bring that confidence that it's not going to be as hard as what you've already done. I love it, man. I absolutely love it. So I, I just, you know, like I said, you know, you, you just get too many people focused on the wrong things. And I love the, the way that, that you're, you know, trying to help change that mindset just because, you know, and, and it's making me laugh here because Coach Harper and I talk about this all the time. It's like, dude, when you when you go to work in the morning like at school and you, and all you hear is 25 you know teachers complaining about oh my god i had to get up at 6:30 this morning and i had to take my kids to school and then i had to go sit through this really boring meeting and my phone yeah. is only half charged you're like really are you kidding me right now <laughs> i mean the stuff you've been through in in athletics and especially football it it just makes Honestly, it can really make life super easy if you'll just let it change your yeah, thinking. Yeah, I think you would agree, Coach. I, I think probably the maybe the greatest transferable skill that you can take with you is, however you want to phrase this, is mental toughness. Yes. And football will give that to you. If you are mentally tough in the real world, you're ahead of 99% of the rest of the world out there. You know, most people have never been challenged. And hey, look, listen, I quit football in the afraid. It was too hard. Then I go blow my appendix and I go to the brinky and my mom pulls me back. So I've been through enough going, okay, I've been through enough. Not, not, not quitting anymore, never again. And I'll take you right to the polar opposite end of when I, you know, hit my toughness peak. We'll say 2009, uh, we were playing in Saskatchewan and I'm in the middle of a block and I got hit from behind and I thought I stubbed my toe, but really I, I shattered my foot. I got what's called a Liz Frank fracture. I shattered every single bone and ripped every little ligament out of my foot. And I'm lying on the ground thinking, okay, my career's over. I was 33 years old or whatever it was at the time, and now's their opportunity to get rid of me. So, so what did I do? I got up and kept playing. Now, I'm not saying this is what you should do with a shattered <laughs> foot, but I am saying what levels of mental toughness could do. And it was the third quarter. And I had to get guys almost to help me to line of scrimmage. But it is shocking what adrenaline can do for six seconds at a time. You bit your lip and get through. And I do wide reach blocks and all this nonsense. And that game went to double – Overtime, okay? <laughs> overtime. And I get out of that room, and the, the doc, the stupid doc, he, he takes my shoe off. My, my foot blows up like one of those uh, medical gloves that you, when you blow air in it, and there's nothing left. I had no toes left. I had this kind of Fred Flintstone kind of, kind of blowfish foot. <laughs> and I remember the sur our team surgeon goes, when, this happened in that third quarter? I said, yeah. He goes, why did you keep playing? I looked him dead in the eye. I said, because the game wasn't over yet. It was only the third quarter. Because you keep going. Okay, so I took awesome. my life full circle from quitting to go. And I was told I'd never run again. They had to rebuild my foot, put this cross screws in. And you know, I came back and played three more years. And it's, it's, it's that stubborn determination because you have something you're obsessed about. And I, I, think it's, I think it's the greatest gift we can give our youth to get them obsessed about something that makes them a better person because it, it fuels, it channels 
that, that, that teenage energy. Look, they got the energy anyways, and it's going to go somewhere. So the more you can put it into something that structures every other facet of their life, the better chance you've got of one, getting them through those tough years where bad things can happen, and two, teaching them how to focus all that energy on this one thing that they want to do and know what it's like to really push themselves to become great at something. They become, to become actually great at one thing is so much more rewardable than being okay at a whole bunch of things because then you're just average again. And you become great at something, you know what that really takes. And that itself can transfer now because you know what it takes to get great at something and all that hard work and commitment dedication you can pour that into the next thing you choose. And that, to me, is, 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 is the real power of this sport and where the coaches have to make sure that they understand that that's what they're doing with these kids. Football is the vessel, right? It's a vessel to help raise our youth, and it is a great one. Couldn't agree more, uh, you know, and especially about the mental toughness. And, and it's something like Wall said. It's something we've talked about a lot. And, and something you brought up, and to me, the, the, the two most important things is that mental toughness, be able to – work through things that are, that are adversities can come through your life. And then being a, um, someone like you said, that, that, uh, makes the whole team better. Right. Even, yeah. and I see that like with, with the family, like you said, you know, it'll make, uh, you know, women want to, you know, marry or whatever that is. They, they can trust that you will provide for the family, which, uh, you know, maybe it's old school thinking or whatever it is, but still kind of what I, what I believe being a husband that you should be as a husband and a father is someone that, that, you know, brings your whole team up, your whole family up. So you have that. And then the mental toughness for, you know, things are going to hit you in your face, uh, being a dad, being a father and a, and a, uh, a leader of your family and to be able to push through that. And that's what, uh, you know, to me is so important that we raise boys into men so they can uh, even, you know, help lead a society as we get even into a bigger scope of things. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, Coach, and I think we'd all agree there. Unfortunately, there is no academic course on that, and that's why right. there is the sport of football. And there's other sports, too. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. But football is just that much more physically demanding, and it's that much more inclusive of the most numbers of kids. That's why I love it, because it gives the most amount of kids this opportunity to be exposed to, as you said, the two things that are really going to matter, right? Physically tough enough to handle everything that's going, life is going to throw at you, and it's going to keep throwing it at you forever. So you never, you never actually win that battle. <laughs> you just fight it better, right? You, just get, you, get, you get to fight it better. And then having a mindset of what can I bring to this situation? I think, you know, I, got, I hang around guys smarter than me because I'm smart enough to know that I, I'm not very smart. So I hang around guys that are smarter than me, and you realize <laughs> where we're headed with technology and how much job replacement there's going to be. You need a mindset of how can I bring value to this equation? You know, not just how can I get a job and get paid for it. What can I do to bring value? And that's that human element that I think even, even the more technology increases will become more valuable. You're somebody that people need around because you make the situation better. You're not someone draining it, looking to take. You're looking to give. How can I add instead of remove? You know, instead of being exactly what's in it for me, saying what can I bring to this group? Now you're always going to be wanted. You're always going to be needed. You're going to have value no matter how the economy shifts and changes. People like you around because somehow you're always making things a little bit better. That is a powerful talent to have. And again, I, not that I know of. I don't think there's a course for that, but there, 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 is, there is sports for that, and football is a great one. I love that too, Coach. And, and you, you know, you'd said too, you, you play for, for 20-some years. You know, you keep adding value to the situation by you having kind of that growth mindset. You never acted like, oh, oh I'm a 10-year vet. You guys should, no. you know, kiss my rings or you guys should – you know, not coach me as hard. I've already kind of earned my time. It sounds like you consistently had that, that growth mindset or that, 
that mindset. I want to continue to learn and I want to continue to get better even, even though I am hitting the later part of my career. And guess what? That's proven to, to really, you know, feed your business career well because, you know, you continue to adapt. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I, I want to say I'm, I, this sounds crazy, but I, I feel fortunate that I was an underdog at the beginning of my career and getting cut and, and taking the hard road because you didn't come, I never came in uh, given anything. It was, you know, kind of slapped in my, slapped in my face and kicked on my butt each step. So I realized I learned to fight. In the beginning, I had to claw my way to get that starting job and claw my way to eventually become an all-star. And then just as that started peaking, I shot on my foot, and now I'm too old. So then I had this mindset, I got to claw to keep to hang on because they want to get rid of me. So I'm pretty good at playing psychological games with myself, whether it be creating that vision. <laughs> and, no, but, it, you know, you, listen, listen, you, you are what you think, right? And, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of not making myself king because the king sits on a throne and gets really fat and lazy, right? I was a big believer in uh, there's a touch of insecurity. I, you know, I, I got to keep fighting or I'm done. And I don't want to get complacent because then I'm done. And so the beginning it was, I got I to gotta prove I'm worth this. And then at the end it was, I got to prove I'm still worth this. And the, every day they're getting younger and getting bigger and getting stronger and getting cheaper than me. So I got to fight harder and I got to bring more to the table. And, and, and you're right, coach. I mean, it served me to the end. I was fortunate that when I retired, I had to get three discs taken out of my back was my last surgery. And then I was 37 kind of going, okay, you know, let's not be, you know, you finally have a moment where it's, okay, we got to be smart here. I got a long life to live. I, I want to be functional. But I was able to sit down with our GM and, and we sort of said, you know, that was offered. We want to come back as a mentor and, and kind of, co uh, you know, help uh, people through. And I said, no, I, I got to move on. Like I, I, I've, I've overticked all my boxes. Like I don't have anything more to do in this career. So I promised myself years ago that I wouldn't stay in the sport just because I can. You know, I, I kind of finished the vision and I, I saw guys that kept playing because they didn't know what else to do. And their heart wasn't in anymore, but their body was good enough to still do it. And I'm going, I don't want to be that guy. The sport deserves more. I deserve more. And I looked at him and said, I, I'm physically done. Like I have given, I had nine surgeries my last three seasons. I was undersized my whole career. And I remember going, I, I can't do it anymore. And just because you want me to hang around and help out, I, I can't. And I got to go do something new again and build a new vision. And I, I'm very proud of myself for doing that because I saw the other guys that played past their best before date, and they didn't, they didn't, they, just, they, were playing, they didn't know what to do. And I remember I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make sure that I was still heading toward a vision, not hanging on to one, pulling one you know, from leaving me. And, and that's a big, big message for guys getting to the end of the career too. Uh, make sure you're, you're still doing exactly what you want to do when you're chasing your vision. You're not just holding on to one because you're terrified of the, the darkness you see on the other side. Uh, that, that's a big one too. Well, what a, one of my favorite parts about, um, you know, questioning guys is, is the vets, the, the long vets, and, and especially to me, the, the guys that aren't as gifted uh, physically that played center. Uh, I, I've always think that they've got uh, the best, and it's probably not the right word to say, but they got the best cheat codes when it comes to uh, being sure. out there and playing. You know, I, I know there's a lot of different things, and, and it's been a few years since you played, but I'm sure you still got some of those. So uh, what were some of your – little cheats or little, you know, little games that you could play as the center that, that helped you out? Because it was like, I always thought the guys that, you know, had to work hard and, and the guys that did study everyone else's found little things to make them better, found little, you know, uh, thoughts to think before a certain play that made them a half a step quicker because they had to think of those things. Uh, can, can you let us in on, on any of those if you can still 
you know, vivid, I'm sure it's, it's been a while, like I said, since you played, but I'm sure you have a, a couple of those that you remember. I know there's certain centers that'll you know, sure. play with how, how far the ball was out in front of them uh, compared yeah. to, the, to the play, but what are some of those? I was, uh, I always, I always stood in the huddle facing the, everyone. We, we had a traditional huddle, you know, where, uh, you know, the line was had their back to the ball facing the quarterback and the, the skill guys and the quarterback and skill guys were facing us. I always turned so I could hear, but I, I wanted to see all the formational changes and, and the, all the subs happening on the defense while the play was being called so I could get ahead of the visual. Now, even that, 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 that two or three seconds to me, I know it wasn't the way the huddle was supposed to be done, but it got me ahead of the game because I could already – I'd done enough homework to know all the percentages of possible fronts based on, based on personnel groupings that would come in and out. So I could already get, the, get you know, 60% of possibilities erased before we even broke the huddle. That was huge getting ahead of it. Uh, I, by the end of my career, I got good enough to work my way. Most guys work their way from the front out. So they work the, the front seven back. I worked back front, uh, by the end of my career, which helped me. I could eliminate a lot of stuff out of the coverages. I could see the safety low high, which eliminated a lot of the blitzes that they could do. And I'd work my way up. Cause I, I found it better. At the beginning of my career, I tried to work at what we were supposed to do. By the end of my career, I worked at eliminating everything else. It made it easier to, to, to there only, there was only two or three options left at that point. So I would just eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. And I worked from the safety in. That, that took time to get to that place. Uh, Call-wise, uh, you know, what worked best was when you had time with guys in terms of uh, weeks, uh, preferably years with the same players. So we would remove – I would make most of the line calls before we moved left the huddle, which sounds crazy. But I got good enough at reading the defensive subs before we broke the huddle. I knew about 90% of the time sure – what the front was going to be in the possible stunt. So I could make the, you know, uh, uh, Deuce 47th right, uh, Leo 37 out. I could make that call before we booked the huddle. With me, there might be a possible change, but I want it done. So I would remove verbiage on the line unless needed because, you know, through the game, you get repetition of verbiage and smart defensives would pick it up. So I would try to make most of the calls early and then reserve the right to give BS calls on the line after that uh, or just need an adjustment call. And that way we could go up the line and just yabber nonsense to each other and keep them confused because we'd already made the call. Because I was good enough near the end to, to with probably 95% accuracy, know what we're going to do. And then we could just go up and make up a bunch of nonsense. And that was always a lot of fun. Or I would go up and, and we would pre-call a deliberate wrong, wrong blocking scheme. And I would do that usually early, multiple times, but I'd make sure everyone knew I was aggressive with it, uh, loud. Uh, you know, silent counts were, were hard. Uh, we changed our silent counts for, throughout the throughout the years. We used to do the stupid, uh, we used to do that stupid foot thing where the quarterback put the foot up, but then my head would have to be between my legs. Uh-huh. And then I think mm. I think we got it from the Colts in the, by about 08 on when they started doing the guard tap, tap yep. on the butt on the center's butt. That happened probably about 08 09. That really helped because I think anyone that played center would say how awful it is to yes. lose sight of everything yes. and become that, you know, that, that was the worst punishment you could have. And defenses <laughs> that were smart knew that we were no, no, they knew we were in a silent count or whatever. They wouldn't, they would shift when my head went down. They just do it on purpose every single time. I mean, what a disaster, right? That was, that was, that was really hard. So when we shifted to the, uh, the guard tap made life a lot easier because I could just shout craziness and I'd feel really confident about it. Uh, but a lot of people don't know. I was very good at, we would do blocking calls sometimes mid, like through the blocks. So if we were doing like a, like a, a scoop 30, a scoop 78, 35. So we're just scoop blocking back to, uh, you know, through the, through the one tech to the mic or whatever. Well, you know, we would be, 
scooping, so we've been comboing up. Well, you still got to decide who's coming on and who's coming off based on where the backer flows and who's going to overtake. And we'd call it feed and be fed. I would feed the guard, or he'd, or sorry, uh, he would feed me the player and come off, or I'd feed him. And we would talk through blocks. And I don't know if everybody does that, but we're really big. And I, I kind of bought that too. Would make call, and the, and the communication would be happening all the way to the end. You know, we, who's coming off, who's coming on, uh, me, you, gone, go now, stay on, all the way through. And it sounds crazy at the speeds you run at, but it's amazing how, how slow that can feel once you've repped it hundreds of, you know, I don't know about hundreds of thousands of times, but at least hundreds and hundreds of times, the ongoing communication all the way through the end of the play continuously was, uh, it's fascinating looking back what you can get done in like six seconds of time. Yes. It really is. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Uh, you know, I got big on uh, – I felt more comfortable telling the backs all their blocking schemes, the swap backs all their blocking schemes. Again, I, I always thought I was adding value because maybe they got lazy and then relied on me, which made me more valuable. I don't know. But I just like to know what everyone was doing, so I'd make a lot of the calls. But starting in the huddle with my eyes already around watching the substitutions enabled me to make almost all the, all the blocking calls before we actually broke the huddle. And that's from relentless film prep, having all the tendencies dialed right down to knowing you know, second and six, we have this formation. They're going to come out in this front. This call is going to equal uh, – our call is going to equal this type of blocking based on that front, you know, with a 5% exception. So, really, it enabled us to go up and talk about whatever we wanted unless there was a check check or I'd, I'd have some kind of code that's saying, listen, we're, we're redirecting it to whatever I'm going to call. But getting ahead of the game was huge, and it gave you so much more confidence. And that call was pretty much already made, and the confidence came from the, uh, the countless hours studying that film. Angus, do, do they play much man coverage up in the in the CFL since you know so many guys can can be moving and they can be moving downhill in motion? Or <laughs> was hard. it main, it's hard. Or was it mainly zone that you got to see? So you, that's why you could kind of teeter see the teeter of the safeties. Yeah. It's a lot of zone. I mean, I think I, I don't I don't like speaking out of turn because you know skill positions isn't my forte. But if you are a straight up man cover corner in our league, that might be the hardest position in all of football. Because yeah. what people that might not understand about Canadian football is uh, all our all our skill players in the Canadian on the on the offensive side can move wherever they want, however they want, pre snap, lateral, front. They can take a twenty five yard run at the line of scrimmage if they feel like it, and you're sitting there static, waiting to cover that guy, and they can take they can do anything they want. They are completely uh, free to, to run around. You just have to have one one body on the end end line of scrimmage. Everyone else, these slot backs or these H backs, even some of your wide outs, they're running around all over the place. And, and you can imagine sitting there as a corner, waiting to cover one-on-one. This guy's taking a 12, 15, 20-yard run at you. He's got full <laughs> speed going by the time the ball snaps. And you've got to cover that with, mind you, correct me, correct me what's a U.S. field is 53 yards wide, correct? Yep. I think it's Canadian rule, a Canadian field 65 yards wide. That is a lot of real estate to come from a static position against a moving target going full speed when the ball snaps. That's crazy. So, yeah, you get a lot more zone and you get a lot more safety help because you're dead in the water if you don't. Or, or you got some sort of beast over there that's just straight up crazy blue. I remember when the Colts went to the uh, guard tap and I was losing my mind watching, watching it that like it was their, I don't know, one of their earlier games, I think. And I see him do that, and I was, it was like it blew my mind. And I started losing my mind the first time I saw it. And every, you know, all my teammates kind of thought I was crazy, and I was like, this is the, probably the most genius like, uh, thing that I've ever seen evolve through football. I mean, you know, I haven't been around it too long. I didn't know that much about it. But to me, it was like, why wouldn't everyone do this? And then within a year, yeah. I'm sure if everyone watching the Colts do it, 
then everywhere. That's how, that's just how it's done now. I mean, it seems like that's silent count now is a guard tapping the center or flashing the hand to the center or whatever that is. Let, let's make it very, let's make it very simple. Anything Howard Mudd does, did, everyone should do. The guy's a genius. So the, guy, the guy was brilliant. So whatever he did, everyone should just do. And the hardest part for that was me getting my rhythm down because I was never used to waiting for somebody else. So, you know, I have my head between my legs. I can lift it and kind of half count and snap it. But the poor guard, they're not allowed to snap their head back or it's, you know, false start. So they kind of have to look back, hit your butt, and sort of, you know, move it back at a nice tempo or else they're encouraging the uh, whatever it's called, uh, you know, procedure. But I would, I'm ready to snap the ball as soon as I hit that in, in right. real time. If the adrenaline's going, now the guard's kind of not even looking yet, right? He's getting blown up by some two technique that just wants to run him over. So I had to have patience on that because instinctively it's like tap, go. No, 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 it's tap. You got to make sure that <laughs> you can't look at the guard. You got to give him that real one count. And, and I, I got some people a few times by so being a little quick on the draw, but you, you know, that's just reps of working it out. It's all good. Well, we, we, you know, we've, we've gone a little over an hour. I know you're, uh, you're going to enjoy getting back on the, on the course, but kind of the oh, last yeah. thing, the yeah. last thing we like to uh, ask everybody is, or I like to ask is when you're watching someone else's offensive line, and it sounds like you did that obviously a bunch in the, in the, uh, in playing in pro. So when you're watching someone else's offensive line, what's some things that they would be doing that would make you think really highly of their coach? Uh, I like to see targets where the hands go. To me, that's, kind of everything uh, even when I coach little guys all the way to pros where do the hands hit first because that's telling me where their eyes have been trained to go I mean you, you hit what you look at every single time your hands will go where your eyes are looking and if you've been well coached and then the body follows so if you don't have a precise target you won't hit precise with your hands now your whole block can't be precise it's, it's impossible so I you know my coach coach Dan Durazio was was brilliant we had a position one a position two a position three and a position four target on the body we were going to hit and each block had a specific target. And when we'd watch film, you know, just blocking him wasn't right. You were in position one. We need you to be position two. And that, I'm talking, that's like an inch and a half over. And the other one might be three quarters of an inch over. But it was very specific. And you watch these lines, particularly zone, zone blocking teams. The precision, and most people watch the footwork, which is great. But I like to watch where the hands strike because that, to me, is where they're trained and what targets they've been given or have they been given a specific target. You can tell if they haven't because the hands just go anywhere to try to latch on. Once you've been given specific targets and everybody's hitting the same ones, well, then the feet open properly. Everything goes in unison, and everybody works together, as my coach would say. They, they look like a, a symphony in motion right? or a masterpiece in precision or whatever he'd say, all these stupid things. But everybody looks <laughs> the same because they've been – They've been all taught to everyone's going position three on this place. So all the hands go to the same place. And if you look at that, you'll hit that. And if you hit that, and then you just drive your feet, you have a pretty good chance of blocking it the way it's supposed to go. So I always watch hand, hand strikes, particularly in the run game. It tells me a lot about uh, how precisely they've been coached. And uh, I think it's a thing you can teach kids right from the get-go. Listen, where are your eyes? That's going to tell you where you're going to go, where all your energy is going to go. And to me, that takes absolutely zero talent from a kid, and it can win almost every block. Coach, love it, man. This has been a, a fantastic hour. I think you got a, a ton of great insight, and, and quite honestly, uh, I look forward to, to having you on again. I think we could talk for a long time. And that's going to do it for this episode of RTP. We want to again thank all of our sponsors. You guys, make sure and go check them out. Help grow our community by telling other coaches about Run the Power. And if you enjoy Running the Power, go get your shirt, long sleeve, or hoodie at runthepower.com. Also, if you have any topics or any questions you would like for us to discuss in the next podcast, 
Simply rate our podcast and then leave a comment in the writer review section of the podcast app. This will help our podcast rating as well as it will allow us to answer the questions you all want answered. Make sure and go check out our blog at runthepower.com. Follow me on Twitter at Harper underscore Coach and Coach Walls at Coach Brady Walls. Run the Power now also has its own Twitter and Instagram, and you can find that at Run the Power. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Talk to you soon.